Sup, you beautiful bastards. Welcome back to the Philip DeFranco Show, your daily dive into the news. We got a lot to talk about today, so buckle up, hit that like button, and let's just jump into it. Starting with some what in the actual hell news, though there are a few of those stories today, but specifically, we're starting with Asiana Airlines. Right, because there are a few understoods on an airplane that you just don't do. You don't listen to something without headphones. You don't jam that seat into recline before you take off. I mean, some people even argue you should never recline, but I'll let the, the group debate that. But something that I thought there was no debate on was no one should try to open the doors. But in Korea, just as the plane was landing, it was about 700 feet from the ground, a man decided to open the emergency exit before being subdued. Now, before I instill a lifelong fear into you, I want you to know, normally this wouldn't be actually possible for a number of reasons. Right? Normally the outside winds pushing down on the door, the air pressure difference between inside and the outside of the plane, it just makes it impossible. But this was possible here because the plane was so low and it was slow enough that neither of those factors were really at play. Also, as far as why this man did it, and there, it looks like the guy was having a panic attack, telling investigators that he was stressed from losing a job, he was feeling claustrophobic, and he wanted to get off quickly. So obviously, before you land, too quickly. But the good news is out of the 200 other people on board, really only about a dozen got minor injuries from hyperventilating. With the man also now apologizing and saying, quote, I'm very sorry to the kids. But ultimately, we're gonna have to wait to see how things play out for him because an arrest warrant was issued for the guy on Sunday. And he could be facing up to 10 years in prison. And then in the least shocking news of the day, that idiot Mizzy has been arrested again. He's a TikTok prankster, though I've seen him more accurately described as a pest. With him last Friday being arrested for the second time last week for allegedly breaching a criminal behavior order after posting this video. Hey, how are you doing? Hey, what Hey, let me get in here. Hey, let me get in here. <laughs> Hey, let me get in here. Hey, let me get in here. Hey, let me get in here. Hey, and what's even crazier, the, the crazier is not really the word, what's what's even dumber is that this video was done just after being told by the court to stop posting pranks without people's consent. But again, we see this stupid and dangerous behavior on display and luckily nothing awful happened. And keep in mind, this is just the stuff he wants people to see. I mean, reportedly his neighbors are afraid to leave their homes and you have some demanding that he get banned from the neighborhood. And again, I said it last time and I'll say it again, all of this is gonna come down to the law. How seriously or not they're gonna take this situation because there's no reason again to believe that he's actually going to stop. Cloud is a hell of a drug and this dumpster fire of a human being wants it at all costs. Then in quickie celebrity news, we got Billie Eilish just taking some swings, posting on the story, suck my absolute cock and balls, you women-hating ass weirdos. And this appearing to be in response to a wave of comments she has received recently. But they're explaining in no longer available stories. I spent the first five years of my career getting absolutely obliterated by you fools for being boyish and dressing how I did. Constantly being told I'd be hotter if I acted like a woman. And now when I feel comfortable to wear anything remotely feminine or fit, I changed and I'm a sellout. What happened to her? Oh my god, it's not the same Billy. She's just like the rest, blah blah. You guys are true idiots. I can be both, you fucking bozos. Also going on to say, did you know that women can be multifaceted? Also saying femininity doesn't equal weakness. And with this story, there are specific takeaways like what it's like to be a famous woman on the internet. How it's another example of women's bodies being policed on the internet sometimes by even so-called fans. But also to me, I think it showcases how people aren't viewed as people anymore. How people are seen as products or content. Because if you were angry at Billy dressing like 
like a boy in the past. Or you're angry that Billy is like dressing more feminine now. You didn't really care about her as a person. You just wanted something that backed up your own worldviews. That made you confident and cozy in your feelings. And we see it in other avenues. Uh, one of the closest ones that comes to mind is Lizzo. I've seen Lizzo get attacked because she feels confident in her body. But then I've also seen Lizzo attacked because she talked about trying to get healthier. And I just truly don't know how anyone can experience any amount of like meaningful fame without losing their mind. Like life's already fucking hard enough just listening to that one voice in your head. Let alone you enter a situation where all of a sudden you have thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even more feeling attacked or invalidated because you're all of a sudden making a change in your life. Where people are like, hey, you suck. Stop that. You're youing wrong. It's all just so exhausting when you really think about it. And then the biggest drama of the year just ended. And I'm actually not talking about Succession, even though, wow. Talk about a show that stuck its landing has left me wanting so much more, which is often when a show should end, even though we don't actually want it to. Rather, I'm talking about the debt ceiling. Because yesterday, President Biden and Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, announced that they had actually come to an agreement. Well, there were concessions from both sides and different people will tell you different things. It really does seem like the Republicans came out on top. And I'll give you some of the highlights of the 99 page bill. First, there are the new pay-as-you-go requirements, which would require new government agency actions that affect revenue and spending to be offset by savings. Also, speaking of agencies, the IRS is losing about $20 billion in funding. Then you had the Biden administration agreeing to new rules that make it easier for energy projects, including fossil fuel ones. Student loans are being touched as well, with Biden being forced to agree to end his pause on student loan repayments. However, the deal also didn't kill his plan to forgive $430 billion in student loans. That's just stuck in the Supreme Court right now. We'll also be seeing changes to SNAP benefits, right? The current rules state that if you're under 50, you need to work to qualify. That's being pushed back to 54 years old. And finally, for these highlights, there's between 50 and $70 billion of unused COVID relief funds, and pretty much all of that's getting clawed back. But all with this, we have a compromise, though not a done deal, because we really won't know until Wednesday, because that's when House lawmakers are going to be voting on this 99-page bill. And with that, there are some questions about how many people are actually on board. Now, McCarthy claims that 95% of Republicans will vote for this bill, but so far, quite a few have come out against it. And they generally have the same arguments as South Carolina's representative, Ralph Norman, who said, Republicans are the only ones who can bring fiscal sanity to Congress. This, quote, deal with the White House fails to uphold that responsibility. And then across the aisle, you have many Democrats frustrated that the administration gave ground on student debt, SNAP, and the environment. And those concerns have led to some, like Representative Ro Khanna, saying, My sense is a large majority of the House Democratic Caucus is in flux as to where they're going to be on this. And none of that's even considering the Senate, where nine Republicans would need to side with Democrats to pass the bill. And again, if anything fails along the way, if this is not passed, the U.S. would default for the first time ever, and that would likely be catastrophic for the economy. And then, long-time viewers note that I talk about my Vessies all the time, and it's because I love my go-to for anything shoes. So a massive thank you to Vessie for being a great partner and sponsor of the PDS, but also for having an amazing Memorial Day sale. You know, I've been rocking the Vessie boardwalks, and like all Vessies, they're lightweight, waterproof, and snowproof, so you can enjoy a relaxing walk in any weather. Personally, I'm loving the laceless look at the moment. It matches the amount of effort that I'm willing to put into anything right now. Uh, you can also move around without being restricted, and Vessie sneakers look great. Plus, the low cut goes with almost any fit you can think of, and with different colorways, you can pick the right look for you. But I also really want to give a shout out to the team at Vessi, helping to support programs to create fresh water where it's needed most around the world. But y'all, this is the time to take advantage of Vessi's Memorial Day sale. Just go to Vessi.com slash PDS or click the link below and save up to 30% on a variety of Vessi styles, whether it be one or a few, because you can always use a few pairs. And if you relate to the show, you're watching this after May 31st, you can still use my link and get 15% off your next order. It's Vessi.com slash PDS. And then there's this growing problem out there that you might not even realize. More and more in America, private security is replacing police. And as that demand has been growing, it's becoming harder and harder to properly vet and train those guards. And with this being a largely unregulated industry, these problems are just the tip of the iceberg. Right? It's not a secret. If you look at polling, you see police are becoming less popular across the country. And following the death of George Floyd in 2020, recruitment numbers went from sliding to plummeting. We're seeing an uptick in retirements around the same time. Philadelphia alone seeing a 10% drop in police staffing levels from 2019 to 2022. And as the police force was dwindling, according to the Brennan Center 
for justice, crime was rampant, with murders, assaults, and carjackings all rising in 2020. And that in addition to an increase in homelessness. We also saw with less police and more crime, anxiety about safety rising, and all this causing the already growing private security industry to absolutely explode. Bringing us to the point now where you have 3.1 security guards and two cops per 1,000 people in the U.S. And that being roughly double the number of hired securities 20 years ago. And one of the things we've seen is that this jump in private security is both caused by income inequality in America and it exaggerates it. Right? Because who hires private security? Rich people and businesses who have things to protect. Which is why if people like this one professor who studies the global security industry saying that inequality causes us to, quote, think of security in narrower and narrower ways, protecting our stuff rather than generating communities where we are all safe. And that's not coming out of nowhere, right? Many civilians don't necessarily feel safer around private security, armed and otherwise. Especially as there's so much gray area regarding what security is legally allowed to do. And there even seems to be a disconnect between what guards, their employers, and the public think they can do. Right? Many security companies say that hired guards are just a deterrent, right? If they witness a crime, they're supposed to call the police. But then you have a security guard hired to protect a gas station in Philadelphia saying if he witnesses someone shoplifting, he's allowed to pursue that person to get the property back. However, with that, the Pennsylvania State Police disagreed, saying the guard does not have the legal authority to act as a police officer. Then you have industry professionals saying that Pennsylvania, along with 30 other states, allows for private citizens to be trained as police officers and gives them arrest powers on property of their employee. And all of that disconnect is only exacerbated by the limited regulations within the security industry. According to the National Association of Security Companies, 21 states do not require any training for security guards. And even in states that do require training, private security is so widespread that it's hard to enforce anything in a meaningful manner. And beyond just a lack of training, many of these massive security companies are applying the quantity over quality method to their hiring process. With Rick McCann, the founder of an association that tracks trends within the industry, saying that major companies dominate the market by hiring en masse and assuming turnover will be high. And on top of that, they keep their costs low by paying the guards about half of what law enforcement typically makes. Right, so for example, Allied Universal, the largest security firm in North America and the third largest employer in the United States, says that its San Diego employees make just $19 an hour. With them also notably facing several allegations of just skipping paychecks. Now, all of that isn't to say there are not companies that do the legwork, right? Hiring qualified candidates, right? Former law enforcement or military and spending the time and money to train them. But the market's in a place right now where those that do have a hard time competing. And that hiring by the dozen method has led to some pretty catastrophic outcomes. Right? Just in the last few months, we've seen several incidents where you have security injuring, shooting, or even killing people following an altercation. And that method of mass hiring also leads to drastically underprepared guards going out into the world not ready for the danger they may face, right? Oftentimes, these guards are just told they're a deterrent for crimes, but then customers turn to them for help or the guards find themselves in dangerous situations. With, for example, one former allied security guard saying, I've had gun lasers and guns pointed at me. I've had a boulder thrown through my rear window. I've had a guy admit to pistol whipping his wife when I responded to a noise complaint, all for $16 an hour. And another example, you had a former allied guard telling time she was placed into a very physical position at a hospital with no training or supervision, a place where she was injured twice within her first several months and saying we were getting hurt on the job. Nobody was backing us up and we'd call the police and they wouldn't come. It was just so poorly managed. And deaths on the job are not unusual. McCann estimates that over 140 security guards are killed every single year, and 85% of those are just murdered, saying clients still don't recognize the changes in overall duties and responsibilities, dangers, and risks. They set the limits of what they'll pay the security company, and security companies have no choice but to hire from the same labor pool as retail, fast food, general labor, and retirees. Right, so that's the situation. That is a problem. What's being done? Well, we've seen several states moving to place more regulations on the industry, like California, where they already have to complete eight hours of training and pass a background check. They just passed a law mandating 32 hours of training after they've begun their jobs. And Tennessee, they just passed an act that requires security guards that work in businesses that serve alcohol to be trained in de-escalation, safe restraint, CPR, and first aid. And with that, any business that's caught with unlicensed guards could risk losing their license. However, as I mentioned before, it's hard to enforce these types of laws on an industry that so readily ignores them. So you can change the rules, but if it's not actually being enforced, you didn't really change the rules. Especially as you have people in the industry going, hey, if we follow these rules, it could mean that we lose both contracts and employees. Or if someone's applying for two jobs, a fast food job and a security job, but they have to wait a month for a background check and training 
planning to start one of them, you're talking about similar pay rates, they're gonna choose the fast food place. But ultimately with this story where I want to leave it is I'd love to know your thoughts in those comments down below. And specifically, yes, I'd love everyone's opinion, but if you or someone you know works in the security industry, Please share. And then, y'all, not to give you another fear, but pedestrian deaths in the US right now are through the roof. They are at a four decade high, with a number killed rising 13% in 2022 over the prior year and rising more than 70% since 2010. And this is very much an us problem, with the United Nations saying that the US had more pedestrian deaths in 2019 than any other country by nearly a five to one margin. Though, when I looked further into that data, there is a massive asterisk. That data doesn't include China and India, which is meaningful because that's like almost 3 billion people, but even with that, these numbers are wild. And it turns out a key thing with this trend we're seeing in the United States is the rise of trucks, with those being far more likely to kill people than smaller cars. And this not only because of their size, but also because they tend to hit people in the head, neck, or chest rather than the legs. Something that's actually even worse for children who often can't be seen in a truck driver's blind spots. And in the case where they hit bicyclists, they tend to knock the person down toward the ground, whereas a sedan knocks them up onto the hood. Which is also why it's not surprising that in the same decade that trucks became more popular, cycling fatalities rose by more than 50%. And while back in 2010, Americans bought and leased roughly equal numbers of cars and trucks, by 2021, nearly 80% of their sales and leases were trucks. And to the point where trucks outnumber cars in every single state, and those vehicles have gotten bigger and heavier, with pickup trucks actually weighing 32% more in 2021 than they did in 1990. Which also makes sense, because when you look back to the 1980s, about half of pickup trucks were classed as small or mid-sized, but by the 2010s, full-size trucks dominated the market. And today's mid-sized lifestyle truck, they're about as big as full-size pickups were three or four decades ago. And apparently a lot of this is just driven by aesthetics, with a third of pickup owners actually saying they rarely or never use their vehicle for things like hauling large freight. And as far as why this is happening, th there's no definitive answer, but experts have several guesses. Some say things like, you know, there's a culture of hyper-masculinity, right? You got people wanting huge, powerful cars. It's, it's kind of a version of peacocking. Though my non-expert opinion there is maybe for some, but that doesn't seem like it would be a, a massive game changer. And if anything, I find myself agreeing more with the idea of it being a race to the bottom, where you have people buying bigger cars to feel safer around everyone else's big cars. Or as The Hill recently wrote, American drivers gravitate to pickups and SUVs because they are are big, bold, and safe, cocooning the driver within a 6,000-pound cage perched high above the humble sedan. And there are also other market factors that make certain people want these bigger vehicles, where automakers love them, usually bigger trucks mean bigger profits, and often they have horrendous fuel efficiency, at least compared to other vehicles, and so it's a big win for oil and gas companies. And so with this, you have some wondering, well, what is the solution? Well, either one, we either invest in sciences that make people taller, build a human being designed to flip onto the hood of a Ford F-150, or two, you have some arguing that there should be a tax on heavier, larger vehicles so lesser produced. Though I will say that would be a drastic change from the current situation. I mean, to speak to this personally, while it's not a one-to-one -one comparison, part of the reason years ago I bought a Model X is it's over a certain weight and so there are tax benefits. Because right? you may not realize this, the tax structure is actually biased in favor of larger vehicles. Or to be more specific to what we're talking about today, you know, work trucks and light trucks are subject to less cafe standards than family sedans. Also, all trucks are exempt from the so-called gas guzzler tax, which adds between $1,000 and $8,000 to the price tag for sedans that get less than 22.5 miles per gallon. But then separate from the idea of you know, we need to restrict or penalize these vehicles is to give more to others and the market might naturally change. With one of those ideas being to redesign urban and suburban spaces to focus on pedestrian safety over driver convenience. Things like more speed bumps, more crosswalk timers, more sidewalks, more bike lanes, better lighting, lower speed limits. And in fact, there, many U.S. cities have already adopted some combination of those. Like in Charlotte, for example, where the city council adopted a plan in 2021 to expand their transit system by adding shaded bikeways, bus routes, commuter rail lines in the next two decades. You also have people saying a solution is to just 
reduce our cultural reliance on cars altogether, be they big or small? Because arguably, and this makes sense when you look to a number of other countries, like everyone relying on their own personal vehicle is both unnecessary and inefficient. Right? If you look at the Europeans, they're more likely to ride bikes, and if they do drive, more likely to use cars and trucks. And so you have people saying we need to invest more in public transit, make cities more walkable and bikeable. But also, I would say that's easier said than done. Right in a place like New York City, you could go, yeah, I could get around easy without a car. But if you've ever been in a place like Southern California, shit spreads so far out for no reason. And then just the sheer amount of insane bureaucracy to, to try and do anything regarding public transit, it's enough to make you think, oh yeah, this is literally never going to happen. Right? I mean, how many years have they talked about a high-speed rail system from San Francisco to Los Angeles? So again, there are arguments to be made that certain legislation can actually fix things. Right? You have things like, unlike in the United States, Europe mandated that by 2024, all new car models have to include intelligent speed assistance, which is a software technology that discourages drivers from speeding. With cameras or GPS detecting the speed limit, then alerting the driver if they're exceeding it, and sometimes even reducing power to the motor to slow them down. And with that, according to a projection by the EU-funded Project Prosper, that mandate alone could cut fatalities down between 26 and 50%. And that's why with this, I would say, one, if you are someone that loves your truck or your car, please don't take this story as like an attack on you, but rather an explanation of the situation backed up by numbers and a bunch of people proposing a bunch of different solutions of varying uh, understandability or annoyances or whatever. And that's where I'm going to end today's show. I hope the rest of your Memorial Day goes well. And as always, thank you for watching. My name's Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love yo faces and I'll see you tomorrow. Hey, um, I am Trey DeFranco. This is my Henry Stickman playthrough and that's awkward. Okay, this is where I'm going to end off my recording. Hope you guys enjoy my first ever episode. And I'll do some more episodes um, later.